Well, good morning. Good to see you. All right. Good morning to those of you who are with us online. And if you just said good morning back. Anyway, good to see you all. If you are visiting with us today or you are watching online uh, for the first time, we are so glad to have you as our guest. And we really would love to know who you are. Uh, You can come and stop if you're here on campus by the front of the stage and introduce yourself to uh, me or Justin or one of our leaders. Uh, But you can also text the word CONNECT to the number that's going to be on the screen. And one of us, uh, one of our staff members will follow up with you. And uh, we'd love to help you get more connected into the life of our church. We're so excited about how God is at work and has been at work in the life of our church. You know, in 2020, I think back to about a year ago when we had our vision night and we talked about the things that we hope uh, to see happen in that year. Uh, There were a lot of those things that just we weren't able to see happen because of the circumstances. Um, But yet, in many ways, God exceeded our expectations. And one of the ways that he did that was through the generosity of our church. I I can't believe that, I really can't believe, and had you told me this uh, a year ago, I would have said, bless your heart, uh, that with an increased budget in 2020 of over 6% from 2019, we not only met that budget, uh, but we exceeded that budget, and we're able now to have a mission impact that is incredible. We have a slide to show you uh, what that mission impact will be. Uh, This is money that we are giving to some uh, priority issues. So our total mission impact, this is money that was not budgeted in 2020, and so it will be spent in the following ways. Uh, The total amount was $344,000, excuse me, $344,646. And so 172 and change of that is going to go to some unfunded ministry requests, things we're not able to budget for in 2021, and priority projects around our facility as we continue uh, to invest in our future. $86,000 is going to be uh, paid, go go towards our debt. Uh, In just over three years, uh, we've paid off close to half of our debt that we took out to do the renovation and new children's building. So praise God for that. And then we're also cutting a check directly to the International Mission Board of $86,000 as a part of our Lottie Moon offering. Just for perspective, our largest Lottie Moon gift ever till today has been about $34,000. So can we praise Jesus For that. And so we're so thankful for God and his faithfulness and how even in these times we can be a church that really is trying to do whatever it takes to lead people to believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who he has created them to be. And we believe the more we focus on doing that, the more we will impact the world for Christ. That's what we're talking about over this three months is how we not only are people who give to missions, but we view our life as a life on mission. We are people who live sent. We began this emphasis two weeks ago uh, by talking about on Sunday morning the question, will you go? As we consider who God is, will we live our life to that end? Then last week we asked, what is holding you back? What is it that is really getting in the way of us living our life this way. And so today, uh, I wanna ask another question that is important for us if we really want to live our life on mission, if we really want to live sin, and that is, will you be a friend of sinners? Will we be a friend of sinners? If you are going to live sin, if you are going to be on mission for God, then you are going to have to answer this question. 
Today we're going to read a passage in Matthew chapter 9 that is in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew and it's Mark and it's in Luke. And we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, and then we'll talk application. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. God, I pray that we would have humble hearts to hear from you this morning. God, that I would be humble as I communicate your word this morning. And God, that we would be ready to obey you. We'd be ready to surrender to you. And God, that you would get glory from your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's begin in Matthew chapter nine, verse one. It says, in getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Before this, Jesus had cast out demons from a Gadarean man, and people were afraid of Jesus because of that, and they asked him to leave. And so now he rolls into his own area. In verse two, it says, behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. For someone to say your sins are forgiven was a bold statement. I mean, if you were to say to someone that their sins were forgiven, then you either had to have a lot of authority to be able to say that, or you had to have a lot of audacity to say that, or you had arrogance to say that. You know, you were saying something that really you didn't have the right to say. Even today, to say that someone's sins are forgiven is a big statement. No other religious leader says your sins are forgiven. Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, all of them say we have uncovered this process by which you can go through these rituals and routines and sufferings and you can pay God back and maybe one day, even after you've lived this life several times, God will say, you've earned it. You've earned it. Jesus says, I forgive your sins now. The Pharisees were people who lived their lives in hopes that their sins would be forgiven. They lived their life in such a way that they thought, hey, if, if God is gonna forgive people's sins, we've got a pretty good chance of our sins being forgiven. We're pretty good at this. And then they have this guy, Jesus, who didn't go through the training that they went through, who didn't have the background that they have. And they have this man who's a paralytic who in their perception and possibly correct perception is that he's paralyzed because of his sins. And so for Jesus to say that this man's sins are forgiven, they said this is blasphemy. In Mark chapter two, verse seven, Mark records them saying, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew that this is what they were thinking of and that the skepticism was altogether bad, so he engaged them. Verse four, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So he heals the man to show that he has the authority, specifically that he has the authority to forgive sins. 
Mark says that this crowd says, we never saw anything like this. Jesus' purpose here to show this kind of authority, and they say God has given authority to men, was to show them that he indeed had the authority to forgive sins. Now, when somebody is doing things like this, they build a crowd. And so this crowd of people builds around Jesus, seeing him heal this man and hearing his teaching, but also the religious crowd is following him. They're somewhat intrigued, but also they're, they're hearing this teaching that they don't necessarily agree with, and they're following him. And so Jesus goes on. All these people are following him. We continue in Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he sat, saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, tax collectors in that day were considered to be pretty sketchy people. Most tax collectors were Jewish people who had then been contracted by the Romans to take taxes from the Jewish people. And the Romans had pretty much allowed the tax collectors to take money on top of that tax that was coming from the Romans as their lifestyle. But you could not pay this tax collector because they had been given this authority by the Romans. And so you had to pay them what they asked. And many of the tax collectors had become pretty wealthy because of this. And so not only were they really in line with the Romans, a tax that the Jews didn't think they should be taxed with, but they were making profit off of this. And so Jesus goes to this man, Matthew, who was in this crowd of people who you would say were not good characters, and he invites him to follow him. Now, let's be very clear here. When Matthew and the other disciples are invited to follow Jesus, they're familiar with the message of Jesus. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. So they don't just say, oh, there's Jesus. He looks cool. I'm going to follow him. They hear the message. It resonates in their heart, and they accept the invitation to follow Jesus. And so that's what's going on in verse 10. It says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Luke chapter 5 verse 29 tells us this was Levi. This was Matthew's house. And at his house are these tax collectors and sinners. These were the people who hung in Matthew's house. Tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were people who, there wasn't just one term you could use to describe them. You know, they didn't just have one thing in general. You couldn't say they were a drunkard because they weren't just a drunkard. There were other issues. You couldn't say that they were promiscuous because they weren't just promiscuous. There were other issues. You couldn't just say they were a liar because, yes, they were liars, but also there were other issues. They were people who, in general, you know, couldn't be characterized for that one thing, but they didn't want to have anything to do really with religion and probably God. These are the people that Matthew hung around before he was following Jesus, and so he's still hanging around them as he's following Jesus. There had not been enough time for people to say, Matthew, you need to be at the church five times a week, or you shouldn't be around those people. And Jesus did not say those things to him either. And so Jesus and Matthew are at Matthew's house, reclining at the table with his friends. I've always told children that when their mom says they need to sit up at the table, you just say, I'm just following Jesus and reclining at the table. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they walk in and they hang around, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, that word means separated ones. They were holy people. They had it together. And so they're thinking, 
If Jesus is from God, not that he is God, but if he is from God, he should be like us. We are the godly people. And if he is holy, if he is godly, then he should be like us. He should be hanging around us, not at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Table fellowship was a big part of this culture and and many cultures. There's an intimacy that develops in table fellowship. This is why it is important that families are able to sit at the table, at least on a regular basis, and have a meal together and not always be eating on the go. There's a level of intimacy that happens when we sit down around together and we look at each other face to face. And so they say, why is Jesus doing that? with tax collectors and sinners to the disciples. But apparently they whisper like my seven-year-old because Jesus heard them asking the disciples this. In verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, Those who think they're good, who they already think they're right with God, they don't need a physician. But those who are sick, they know they do. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What I want, and this is from God's word, is not people who say, I'm going to give up and do all these things and that's what makes me righteous. But I want people who understand what mercy is and then show that mercy. And the reason I'm here with these sinners and these tax collectors is because I came not to call the righteous, the ones who've described themselves as righteous, but to call sinners who know they need righteousness. That's how Jesus focused his ministry. So that brings us back to the question, will you be a friend of sinners? Will we be a friend of sinners? You see, that's a part of following Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus, people often say, what would Jesus do? Okay, but what did Jesus do? He spent time with sinners. If we are really going to live sent, then we have got to spend time with people who need to hear the message of Christ. And so considering our text and considering the purpose of Jesus, let me first ask this. Are you praying more for people to rise and walk or for their sins to be forgiven? Are you praying more for people to rise and walk or for their sins to be forgiven? I want you to think about your prayer life. I want you to think about the prayer life of your family. I want you to think about the prayer life of your life group or Bible study or whatever it may be. What are you praying more for? Because at least in most circles that I'm familiar with, we are praying way more for people to be healed, for people's surgery to go to well, for people's life on earth to be better than we are for them to understand what it means to have eternal life. Now, it's not wrong to pray for your friend who's sick, your friend who's having surgery, whatever it may be. But are we praying for people to come to see who Jesus is, for people's sins to be forgiven? Jesus told his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray for workers of the harvest. We are to be praying that we and others would be going out and living sent, living on mission, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Are we praying for those things? And I would ask you, when we pray for people to rise and walk, when we pray for people's surgeries and people to feel better and all of those things, are we really honoring God with those prayers? Because if you notice in our text today, he rose and walked so that it would be seen that Jesus had authority, so that God would get gloried, glory. It says in the text, and the crowd glorified him. We do not pray for our surgery our sickness, and all these things simply so that we would have a more comfortable life. We do not pray for other people so they would simply have a more comfortable life. We pray that they would be healed so that they can live with purpose for Christ. We pray that they would be better so that they would not be distracted by the things of this world because that is why God has us on this earth. We pray for those things so that we would be fueled. And when we have that kind of attitude in prayer, I truly believe that it makes it easier for us to say, but if God, you have some reason for this to not be the will, way that I would want it to be, nevertheless, your will be done. Because we should be praying that his church would be on mission. His people would be living sent. Now, why do we not? I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with not just our church, but most Bible studies, life groups. Why are we not praying like this? Well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're not praying for this because our heart isn't broken for this. We're not praying for this because our heart isn't where it should be in this. And you can see this by the way that Christians kind of pattern our lives. I mean, Christians seem to either avoid the world or become like the world. Christians seem to either avoid the world or become like the world, but Jesus prayed that we would be in the world and not of the world. That we would be engaged in the world, in the lives of people who are not pursuing Christ, but we would not be living our life according to the same thing. Jason Dukes in our life group material this week says the American church tends to train new Christians for months before sending them out to make disciples. But by that time, the close relationships they previously had with lost people have basically been disconnected, making it more difficult to lead them to faith in Christ. What, what we, we have a new believer, they're in the world, and we say you need to come here as often as you can. And you need to distance yourself from those people who aren't living for Christ, become like us. And then the pastor starts preaching and we start saying, okay, now go and build relationships with the lost. And like, well, I disconnected from all of those relationships. I disconnected from that. And so I'm not really living my life. And so this is kind of what we do as church often. Now, let, let, me, let me say this too. So there's been a movement probably in the last 20 or 30 years of Christians who like don't go to church that often, which you are the church, you can't go to church, but that's fine. And, 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 and some of you would say, well, we're living, we're living on mission. You know, we're being the church. Okay. 
That might be true. But most of what I observe is just people who say, we don't wanna go to church as much. And so we're gonna do these activities with all these people, but we're not really living a mission for Christ. And we actually end up just hanging around Christians who like to do the same things we do away from the church. And we're not really living a mission. Now, I'm not talking about you have to come here on Sundays and hear me. I mean, you know, I, I can't talk about it. Am I are my feelings personally hurt at the number of people who consider this their church that don't listen to me preach that often? Yes, they're personally hurt. That's because I'm insecure and I gotta, God's gotta deal with that with me, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But let, let, let me just say this. If you, you as a family say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna be all in on this sport or we're gonna be all in in this crowd or we're gonna be all in in this, then you still have to have some kind of biblical community. Because if not, what are you really inviting people into? If we're being the church, then yes, we are outside of this building, outside of a church gathering on a consistent basis, a lot. But we're also inviting them into some fellowship of the believers where we are doing the things the Bible says to believe. It's both and. It's not either or. It is both and. That's how we live our lives. So the argument we really have today, probably in our church, is how much we should be at this building and be moralistic and how much we should be outside of this building and be some other definition of moralistic, but not really how do we live on mission for God? How does the Christian community fuel us being on mission for God? That's not really our concern. So why? Why is this not really a concern? Why do so many people miss this? How is this such an issue? Why is there such resistance when we talk about these kind of things? And, and I really believe it's interesting because I think if there were a lot of other problems with the church, people, you would hear about it. People would complain about it. We'd have special called business meetings about it. But we just kind of are okay with the fact that very few of us are really living our lives in this way. So I first gotta ask this question. Are you looking for a Messiah who validates you or saves you? Are you looking for a Messiah who validates you or saves you? The religious crowd, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were expecting the Messiah to be all about them. They believed the Messiah was going to vindicate them and going to give them power. By the way that they were living their lives, they had earned something and God was going to give them that thing that they had earned. Now this manifests itself differently amongst Christians today. I would say there's still that crowd that is legalistic and moralistic and they cling to those values and because they're legalistic and moralistic, they are believing really Jesus should vindicate them to those who are not legalistic and who are not moralistic and they begin to think they're better than those people and they begin to expect God to give them better than those people. But something else in more modern terms is this idea of believe in yourself Christianity that just inherently thinks, even if I don't keep the legal stuff and the moral stuff, right? I'm good. So we don't even have to follow the church rules to be better than the other people, right? And so God better give me what we want. And here's the word we use, but God better give me my destiny. That's the new word. That's the new prosperity gospel. It's my destiny. It's what God has prepared for me. What we mean is here's what I want my life to look like. And God owes it to me because of who I am. 
Now, I would say also there's that crowd that is in all these Bible studies and studying the word, and we know so much about God without really knowing God that because we know so much about God, we think we're better than other people, and God should give us what we want. And so I think in all these things, this basic concept has been twisted where we think I'm good because I'm legalistic or moralistic, or I'm good because I watched a bunch of Disney movies when I was a kid, or I'm good because how many Bible studies I go to, and because I'm good, God should give me what I want. But listen to this, according to the Bible standard of good, you and I are not. According to the Bible standard of good, you and I are not. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verse 20, to the, in the Sermon on the Mount, to the lowly, to the weak, he said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless you're more righteous, not as righteous, more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were living in this day and you were comparing yourself and how righteous and holy people are, you would think there is no way in the world I could ever be that righteous. I mean, even Art Wilson would be intimidated by their righteousness and their holiness and keeping of the law. He says, unless you live better than them, you will never Go to heaven. This is why Jesus hung around the people he hung around. Because he said, there are people who know that. There are people who know I can never earn heaven. I don't have it figured out, but I, but I want to be with God. How can I be with God even though I can never be that righteous? And they're open to the mercy of God. Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus surprised people and shocked people and upset people by who he spent time with. You could say it this way. Jesus liked people who were not like him. And people who were not like Jesus liked him. I mean, if you look at Jesus and you begin to see, you know, John the Baptist, it's like there's one that's coming greater and, you know, the dove ascends and all that. I mean, it, I don't know why I'm mocking that. It's like powerful. And so you're thinking this, Jesus is gonna go and he's gonna make a name for himself, which he did, but on earth. And then he goes and hangs around people who were not like him. And he liked them. And those same people wanted to hang around him. Now, I've actually had people say to me, I'm not a church person. I mean, usually it's kind of in defense when you know, I'm talking to them about God or talking to them about church or I just walk in to pay for a drink and they're like, I'm not a church person. I'm like, dude, I'm, just, I'm not sharing the gospel with you right now. I'm just trying to pay for that Coke Zero, okay? Like, so they're on the defense because they know who I am. And, and honestly, sometimes people say I'm not a church person because they mean I don't wanna change. I don't even wanna hear anything about how I need to change and so that's what they mean. But also sometimes people say, and I believe they think this, and maybe this is you today, church is for church people. And God wants the people who've got it together. And that's not me. <laughs> and so people who are not like that need to run in the opposite direction. But that's not the message of Jesus. Jesus said, I am here for people who in their very honest moment know that there is something wrong. He said, I'm not here for people who think they're good, who think they have it all together. And listen, if you're watching this online and this is the first time you've been with us, 
or at a church, watching church service or anything, or being in some kind of anything, or you're here with us on campus today because somebody brought you and this isn't really your thing, I want, I want you to hear this. The goal is not for you to be like us. It's not for you to join our team. The goal is for you to have right standing with God. It's for you to be made right with God. And if we are really following Jesus, it's not because we're really good. It's not because we're good people. In fact, if we self-assess that we are good people, then we're not actually following Jesus. The reason we're following Jesus is because of the mercy of God inviting us to follow Jesus. The Bible is good news for sinners. I wanna talk about the good news for sinners. Let me first say, the news is not the problem, our sin is the problem. It needs to be said. Because often when you hear that you need salvation, obviously that means you're lost, you're headed in the wrong direction, and you think, ah, I don't wanna hear that. That's just judgmental. That news is not the problem. Our sin is the problem. Like, if you were being swept out in a rip current and somebody's like, swim, you know, in that direction or stay right there. I don't know if you can because the rip current is taking you, but, you know, and they're trying to get you. That person's not the problem. The, the condition you're in is, is the problem. If you go and you get a CT scan and it reveals that you have cancer, you don't kick the machine. That's just the tool that's telling you that there is a problem in you. If you go and, you know, you get your vehicle uh, looked at and the, the mechanic says there's something wrong with it, um, then they're not the problem. What was wrong is the problem, unless they say it's the flux capacitor and they're trying to rip you off. But you know, they're not really the problem. It's, it's the problem already exists. And I think sometimes we look at the gospel message, the message of Christ as the problem, but the problem exists already. And here's the problem, we're sinners. And it's an identity problem. And it's bigger than sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That's different. It's not that we've messed up a few times and so we say, oh, well, that makes us a sinner. No, it's that our identity is we are a sinner whose heart is set apart from God and that's why we sin. You know, we don't just look at the symptoms of a sickness and say the problem is a cough or the problem is a fever, but usually those are indications of something else that is a problem. And so the good news of, of the judgment we deserve is that it points to the cure. The Bible doesn't just condemn us, it points us to how, how to be free, how to be cured. That's the good news. And when you realize that you are sick, you realize that you need a physician. When you realize that you are a sinner, you realize that you need a savior. And if that illness is life-threatening, if that illness is serious, then we want to get treated right away. But what if no one has the answers? What if no one can tell you how to be righteous? And listen, there's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no guru, there's no life coach, there's no one who can tell you how to be righteous apart from what has been revealed to us through Jesus. And Jesus came to say, I am the physician you need. Jesus came to say, I am the physician you need. And if you're here this morning, 
and you realize that you are a sinner. You don't need to pray prayer in a certain way. You don't need to give money. You don't need to start going to church X number of times. You don't have to buy a live tent, a live scent t-shirt. You don't have to do all these things in hopes that you would be forgiven. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven now. He has the authority to forgive sins. And your sins can be forgiven now. Now, what does this mean for someone who is following Christ? Will you be a friend of sinners? Will you be a friend of sinners? Who do you spend your time with now? How do you spend your time now? You say, well, I don't have non-Christian friends. So my question to you would be, are you following Jesus? Yes, I am. Do you have non-Christian friends? No. Repent. Change. Adjust that today. Start living in a different direction, in a different way. If, if somebody came to us and said, hey, I'm not giving, we'd be like, hey, you need to change that. Like now. Well, it's not gonna look perfect. Okay, you need to start working towards that. Now. If somebody came and said, I'm, I don't pray ever, we'd be like, well, start. You gotta start. Okay, well, I will when I, no, now. Like right now, let's pray together right now. You know, if somebody says, well, I'm just not loving at home, we wouldn't be like, oh, okay, well. Change. Immediately. I mean, it, it's interesting to me, like, if morals are bad, we're like, okay, you need to change. But then if somebody is like, I don't do what Jesus was all about and said to do, we're like, oh, all right, me either. <laughs> Look, if we're unhealthy and we wanna be healthy, Things have got to change, right? Like, we've got to change where we go, who we spend our time with. Maybe have to be more intentional about things, start hanging out at different places. This is what we got to do if we really want to follow Jesus into this. And, and so is our goal to just be like, good, or is it to follow Jesus? Do we want to live a, a good life or a Christ-filled life? Because this is where Jesus is, and this is what Jesus did. He was doing this. And so if we're following him, we do this. And it's clear, not just in the life of Jesus, Jesus was the fullness of God, but from Genesis to Revelation, this is what God is about. And so if we're about God, we're about this. If I asked almost all of you who profess to be Christians, you would say, you know, I'm trying to pursue God. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I wanna be holy as he's holy. So if in our pursuit of holiness, we have lost sight of the gospel, we have lost sight of holiness. Don't confuse that. If in our pursuit of holiness, we have lost sight of the gospel, we have lost sight of holiness. Holiness comes through the gospel message to us. And Christianity is a response to the mercy of God. Therefore, we become merciful. We become ambassadors for the kingdom and we live our lives to this end. Now, maybe you see this in your heart this morning. Maybe this message is challenging to you, convicting to you, whatever word you want to use. So let's confess that to the Lord. 
God, we are not living like this. Maybe it's ignorance and I just, God, I haven't seen how much of your word is about this. Maybe it's a lack of discipleship that happens. I mean, if you, if you get saved into a church culture that doesn't focus on this as a part of how we live, then, I mean, it's so easy to be here, right? Like, you know, one of the challenges we must acknowledge in trying to be healthy people is our culture doesn't really facilitate that very easily. Like, we have to be super intentional to be healthy people. We have to change things. And so I would say the Christian culture doesn't facilitate this easily. It's easy to fall into this complacency and lack of mission. So let's just confess that to the Lord this morning. In just a moment, we're gonna pray together. I would just say, during that time, just confess that to God. But let's also, let's also say this, God, we're gonna start praying for workers of the harvest. Life group leaders, I hate to use this word. I'm begging you, please don't let prayer times go by without praying for workers of the harvest. Yes, we'll pray for the knee surgery and all those things, but pray for workers of the harvest. Pray that that knee surgery go well so that person can be a worker of the harvest. Pray to that end. Every time we meet, and then let's challenge each other to build relationship with those who we know don't know God. I mean, they say they know God, but we know they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand what makes them right with God. They're just trying to live a good life and hope that God, man, they can have such assurance of that hope. And let's build on those relationships. And what I will tell you is that as you build on those relationships, you will see that these are people who are sheep without a shepherd. And if you're following Jesus, you will have compassion on them. Even if they live their life in a way that is reckless and dangerous to themselves and counter to what you're living, they need the shepherd, just like we needed the shepherd. And then as a church community, we should be praying for each other and praying and open to people that are invited into this community who are seeking that righteousness that only comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we should be serving people so that we would have opportunities to meet more people together, to invite them in this community that's focused on Christ. We're not saying switch to us, join our team, but we're saying we have been saved by a holy God. We were not good. He is good. He made us right with him, and he has invited us to join him on his mission of proclaiming his glory on this earth. And the more we live for that, the more we experience the goodness of God. May this church be that. May 10% of us in this room be consumed for this. And let's see what God does. Pray with me. God, I pray that we would take the posture that you deserve. And as we move into a time of response, I pray perhaps even physically, we would be on our knees. God, and when we get on our knees, it's because we are bowing before your throne. You are the king. And we recognize that you have all authority. Jesus, you said... All authority has been given to you. Go, therefore, and make disciples. 
So God, as we go, as we live our lives, the king has told us by his authority, we are commissioned to live sent, to live so that people would know who he is. Our God, for the Christian, this is not burdensome. It's a gift. It's a gift that even in my failing to do this as, a, as the pastor of our church, God, you're with me. You didn't say, and I'll be with you as long as you have enough conversations this week or you don't strike out this many times or you don't get distracted, but you said you'll be with me, God. You said nothing will take me out of your hand, God. And so in, the, in spite of the ways that I've failed this king, he calls me son. What joy it is to run with you. What joy it is to run for you. And what joy it is when somebody comes to know that same truth. I pray we would live our lives to that end. And that we would be blown away by what you do. I pray this in Jesus' name.